This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you at five past twelve here on the Country Hour. A little rain about over the weekend. Were you lucky enough to get any of that? It really did only fall sort of in parts of the lower west and the southwest of the state. So outside of those regions, it is really starting to get dry again after... Well, most of you did get a decent fall. Was it going back sort of three or four weeks ago? But since then, not a lot about. So as a result of that, farmers are starting to think of ways to sort of handle these seasons, not only this one, but going forward. And after half past 12 today, you're going to head out to Dumbleyoung, which is about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. And farmers there are experimenting with some dam covers just to reduce as much water evaporation as they possibly can. You'll also head out to the eastern wheat belt. Farmers there are still optimistic that there will be some decent rain this month. And I wonder whether the record cattle prices are going to continue. The details of the Mushay cattle market for you just before the news at one o'clock. First, though, the Indonesia-Australia free trade deal has officially started. And for the rest of this year, there's roughly 250,000 tonnes of feed grain that could go into the new market. Grain Growers Chairman Brett Hosking says although this deal won't make up for the losses with China... It is a great step forward. One of the most exciting parts of this deal for growers is that this is a trade deal that's a little bit different to what we've done in the past. And I think coming out of COVID, it might be the trade deal of the future. A really exciting part about this deal is a strategic grains partnership where we actually take some of our best and brightest um, researchers and processing intelligence over to Indonesia. We teach them about the quality of Australian grain, the characteristics. We teach them how to mill it and how to get the best out of it. And we actually provide skills to our our nearest neighbour, the Indonesian people, as well as actually helping them develop the way they process Australian grain and get the best out of it. So the way I see it, it's a really exciting win-win. Who will be sending over grain and, and when will it be sent? The trade at the moment will be accumulating grain. Now, now it could actually be barley coming out of what's going on in China and the, the need to find new homes for barley. But more than likely, it'll be grades of feed wheat, possibly sorghum, could be oats, could be even some of our legumes as well. But um, more than likely in the initial stages, it'll be wheat, but hopefully it'll grow as we as we develop that processing piece, that strategic partnership piece around teaching them how to use barley in their feed mix, which they've never done in Indonesia before. So if we can teach them skills in the, with these new grains and with Australian grain, then it's really exciting to see what could happen in the future there. And so this deal says that 500,000 tonnes of um, Australian feed will be sent over each year. Is this something that you hope will grow in the coming years? Yeah, so that, that 500,000 tonnes grows 5% year on year. But more importantly, as the partnership develops, as that relationship develops, then I think there'll be plenty of opportunities to go back to the table with, with what is our closest neighbour. And, and we should have a really good relationship with our closest neighbour. And as we provide them with skills and, and with expertise in using our grain, and as we also provide them with some of our best grain, then I think there's real opportunities to see that grow even higher. And you said this is kind of a trade of the future for Australia. It's been a really tough few months with grain growers with the Chinese market and tariffs. Now, in, in 2018, 
that market was worth $1.5 billion. How will this compare, do you think? It's not going to replace China as a trading partner. There's no doubt about that. Or not going to replace the, the barley side of the China market. But it is a really positive step forward. And we've, we've got to keep in mind that Indonesia is one of our closest neighbours. They're a really rapidly growing population. They've got animals they've got to feed. They've got people they've got to feed. They're, they're a great trading partner with things like live cattle and that sort of thing at the moment. And if we can develop these partnerships and I actually feel like one of the mistakes that maybe we made with, with China is it became too transactional to the, part, the relationship. It was, we'll provide you with a product and you'll, you'll pay cash for it in return. And instead, this is a little bit different. We'll provide them with a product and yes, they'll pay cash in return, but we'll also provide skills to a, to a population that, that actually could, could really benefit from some of the research and um, knowledge that we have here in Australia. I've got a daughter going to uh, study in Ag at Melbourne Uni at the moment, and some of what she's learning would be, wouldn't it be great to be able to share that in a, with, with our closest neighbours overseas, some of that knowledge and skills, and, and actually help lift their, um, I guess, lift the bar in their country of knowledge as well, as well as developing a really strong trading partnership. And there's been good rainfall this year. You know, it's been quite a tough few years for, for grain growers. They say there'll be a 50% jump in, in grain production this year. Where do you think that will go? Uh, look, I, I think we've got a really big task ahead of us, um, particularly with what's come out of China and, and industry ourselves, as well as the trade and government, are working really hard looking at new homes for, mar- for our barley coming off the back of, of what's happened in China. So I think we've got a big task ahead of us to um, find markets for this grain. But you know what? It's pretty exciting to be able to see it grown, particularly along um, the East Coast, particularly New South Wales and Queensland with the run of seasons they've had and to be able to see them getting excited about something good coming out the ground, a, a really promising crop and um, a real lot of optimism. That's pretty special as well. So um, certainly hope and pray that those that have missed out so far, I think the West guys in the West are still going rain by rain, and you now we hope and pray they get a bit as well, but um, it's exciting for those that have missed out for the past few years as well. I feel like we've still got a big road ahead of us um, when it comes to trade and to markets, but that being said, I feel like we're making the right steps. We're, we're looking really strategically at the moment um, for alternative markets for barley, so we're, we're assessing countries based on things like their ability to malt barley, um, their, their capacity to malt barley, knowing that um, excuse me, malting barley is always going to be our, our biggest premium in the barley market. We're also looking at things like the, the barriers of entry into those countries. So whether whether they have tariffs in place, whether um, we have a trading relationship like we've just developed with Indonesia. And then we're also looking at it from a freight point of view. Fuel's relatively cheap at the moment, so shipping freight isn't a big issue, but we know one day it'll go back up again. And um, we know that can also be our strategic advantage when fuel prices are a bit high. So we're assessing countries based on those things and um, looking at where we can actually throw some real effort behind developing new markets for barley. And I feel like we're making pretty good progress at the moment. Any idea on, on what countries you're looking at? Well, I mean, the obvious choice are uh, a lot of the, you know, the Asian countries being particularly close to us. And, you know what, we always want to trade with our closest neighbours. We want to support the, our closest neighbours and see strong partnerships and strong neighbours. But we're also looking a little bit further afield. Um, the Middle East has been a traditional home for a lot of barley, but also continents like South America or Africa have also got quite a bit of malting capacity in some of those countries. So we're looking at ways of whether there's opportunities for, I guess, Australian malt barley in particular to find a home in those countries and, and hopefully add a premium to the growers that provide that barley. Look, I, I think it would be fair to say that we feel like the relationship with China has 
has kind of soured and it's a little bit bigger than than just barley. That being said, as as growers and as industry, we're we're certainly uh, doing our best to re re-engage with the Chinese government in particular. We're so I guess following the steps in the process coming out of um, the tariff. So we're not just leaving that alone, but we're we're going back to China and we're we're looking at what our options are to um, whether it be appeals or whether it be just um, re-engaging and negotiating. And you know, look, things like that, things like World Trade Authority and that, none of that's off the table. But they're pretty big steps and they're going to take a while. So we're actually seeing if there's a, a shorter-term solution, um, you know, a relationship-based solution before we we go down that path. Grain Growers Chairman Brett Hosking talking to Eden Heinenen about the Indonesia-Australia free trade deal, which has now officially started. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA, 13 past 12. Well, it is very early days, but the Ord River District Cooperative would just love to see a cotton gin up and running in the Kimberley by 2022. Now, this follows the state government's decision to award $100,000 to Ordco to investigate the potential for a local cotton gin. Now, that money is going to be matched by Ordco and then used to develop a business case and a governance structure for the facility. Ordco Chief Executive David Cross says the gin is essential to take the industry to the next level. In order to to realise that potential around around cotton. We need to be able to process the product here in the ord itself. Um, Currently we've been road freighting to the eastern states ginneries, which is fine on a smaller scale, but once you start to scale that up, the costs and limitations in terms of availability around road transport make it difficult and make it difficult so that it becomes unviable. The aim is to really focus on the the ginnery having a a co-owned industry-led structure and then following the the signing of the MOU we put out an EOI call to other interested growers uh, and um, industry stakeholders um, and got a a really encouraging um, level of feedback around that as well. In terms of exploring this further, have you got a time frame in mind? Where we would like to see the end point and, and where we're aiming at is potentially ginning in season 2022. But I, I must stress that there's still um, a great deal of work to be done. That, that, is, a, that is a target. But um, as, as I said, there's still, there's still quite a, a deal of work to be done in order to achieve that. David Cross is from the Ord, Ord River District Cooperative and catching up there with Rebecca Nadge. Quarter past 12 and staying in the north of the state for a little bit longer because mango growers in this part of WA could face a a shortage of workers this coming harvest after Kununurra's only recruitment agency decided to close its doors for good. I'm talking about the Job Shop Agency, which has been helping out the industry in this region since 2006. Managing Director Andrew Colbeck says they'll still have the harvest labour contract with the federal government, but it's going to be operating from Darwin. And with no local Kununurra office, he thinks the mango industry will have to explore all avenues to find workers. We are genuinely concerned that there's going to be a shortage of workers from sort of late spring onwards as eastern states crops start becoming ready for harvest. We're wondering how we're going to go towards the latter stages of the year when it's hot and uncomfortable. But um, 
we're talking to approved employers around the country to say, look, if you've got any workers that are going to be finishing in August and September, uh, we'll take them. They can come up to the Territory and do and start in, in the Darwin region and then move on down through to Catherine and, and Kununurra. And, and that, of course, will translate over... Uh, uh, sorry, Catherine and Mataranka, and then that will translate to any demand in Kununurra as well. So where are you hoping that these workers would come from? Is it just a matter of, you know, anyone and everyone that's interested, you'll try and sort of entice them up here? There's a number of sources. So uh, the government's very keen to encourage Australians into into harvest work, and we haven't had a great deal of success with that in the past. There's the seasonal workers who are... Uh, all, all of our groups of seasonal workers are overwhelmingly keen to stay in the country, even if the borders open. They're very happy working. While, while they're gainfully employed, they're very happy to stay here. And we're looking at other venues, including um, refugees, newly settled refugees. There's, there's quite a few in Darwin that we're, we're going to be looking at to see whether we can offer them some sort of employment opportunities as well. The fact that Australians aren't keen on doing this sort of work, I mean, do you ever see that changing? What needs to happen to sort of, I guess, promote the industry to locals? Well, good good question. But you're right. We've struggled to get Australians doing that base level of harvest work, picking whether it's melons, pumpkins, mangoes. We can find plenty of Australians that are, you know, work well in sheds, forklift machinery operators, but it's that base level of labouring that we don't seem to get many candidates. And then the few that do try, yeah, very few of them actually last the season. Job Shop Managing Director Andrew Colback with Rebecca Nadge. Chris Robinson runs a relatively small mango farm in Kununurra and employs about four people each year. He says some of the bigger growers might struggle finding backpackers as workers this year, but he thinks he's going to cope just fine. Uh, we used to use the um, a combination of the job shop for our, our workers and also largely walk-ins. Um, so far this year, we've had um, probably no shortage of walk-ins. We've had people come in and get uh, looking for work. We've also had people come back two or three times, people that haven't been able to secure good employment and have come back two or three times. So there, there's obviously a few people in town that are just not finding enough work. There's also a reasonable number of locals around that have indicated that they're prepared to do some work should we, should we need extras. How difficult has it been to forward plan for this season amid COVID-19? Uh, with mangoes, well, we've still got another sort of three months to go, two or three months to go before we have to start harvest. So we've got a little bit of time yet to look for staff and stuff. But uh, up until now, you know, you're, you're reliant on uh, the weather conditions largely for your flowering and stuff. And so we've now got a flowering. We'll start planning from now on to get ready to um, do the harvest. And that is mango grower, Kununurra mango grower, Chris Robinson with James Liveris. 20 past 12. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour. It's great to have you along this afternoon. Off to the other side of the country now to find out about this table grape producer. This is in Victoria's northwest, and this producer's been caught growing a new variety without the appropriate authorisation. 
A Sunworld International audit found the Sunraysia grower had breached the company's intellectual property and contractual rights. The company's Vice President of Licensing, Garth Swinburne, says he's disappointed because they found about 10,000 plants that had been propagated illegally. Sunworld invests you know, heavily in, in developing new table grape varieties in both time and money so growers can realise benefits of varieties with high productivity and uh, strong market demand. So we engage with uh, marketers and growers and nurseries and we enter into legal agreements that you know, outline the terms which we agree upon and which we will do business together. So part of the, the responsibility of being a breeder and a commercialiser, I guess, of these new table grape varieties is to enforce the breaches of those agreements and any uh, infringement of PBR law. Now, fortunately, uh, of the 1,800 growers we have worldwide, we, have, we find that 99% plus understand and embrace that, uh, that working relationship. But there are always a few who, uh, I guess, believe they can get away with illegal activity and, and cheating on this relationship by stealing proprietary property. So we, we make sure we invest significant resources globally to ensure our businesses or our business and the, uh, the investment of our licensees is uh, protected from this activity. Sunworld International's Vice President of Licensing, Garth Swinburne, talking to Cherie von Horscher just about that table grape producer in Victoria's northwest caught growing a new variety without the appropriate authorisation. And the penalty, $315,000. And those vines will have to be removed, so no mucking around with those sort of things. This is the Country Hour, 22 past 12, not far away from news headlines, and then a look at um, the weather ahead across to the Bureau of Meteorology and then the rainfall figures. Richard Hudson will be in the studio to go through those figures for you. It's not a huge list today. In fact, some regions haven't received much rain at all this winter and farmers in some parts still carting water for livestock. So the Dumbleyung Shire has decided it's time to trial dam coverings just to see how much of a difference they'll make as far as reducing um, water evaporation. You'll hear more about that shortly. First, though, it's off to the eastern wheat belt. And Jeff Bent farms about 40 kilometres north of Muck and Buden. So that's about 300 kilometres east of Perth. And he says, like the Dockers, his season has been a bit slow to get going, but he hasn't given up hope of a catch-up. We've had a reasonable sort of germination, but everything's sort of late, uh, probably a couple of weeks behind, two or three weeks behind where it should be. About the 12th of June, we've had about nine mil, I think, in one in the biggest four we've had, I think. So that was over a couple of days. So um, then we've had fours and fives sort of things and threes, so not a great deal. Do you think they have time to catch up if you've got a bit of moisture? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Like, um, yeah, 2008, we had a, had a very late rain in July and it was looking similar probably not as good as it is here and, you know, we still had a pretty good year. So, yeah, there's always hope. And I know you've got livestock. How are they going for feed and water? Um, if they could eat sand, they'd be doing well. But, no, at the moment there's no no feed really at all, a little bit of grasses and stuff like that. But, yeah, just been feeding sheep for quite a while now, yeah. And the water situation for their livestock? Uh, fine. I've got a, a bore. So, um, yeah, it's really good water. So I've got no problem at all with water and um, we're sort of not drinking a lot this time of the year anyway. Muck and Boudin farmer Jeff Bent still optimistic about getting a decent amount of rain 
this month. Joe Granich also farms in the eastern wheat belt, and he's a little bit further east at Moorine Rock. That's between Southern Cross and Meriden. And so far, they've received a bit more rain than Jeff. Yeah, it's good out here. Um, we've been probably a bit luckier than most. Probably we finished out around the 20th and we've had probably four rainfall events of about 9 to 10, 11, 12 mil. We had a good summer rain from about early Feb to probably middle of March. Um, we probably had 90 to 100 mil. How are the crops looking now? What stage are they all at? Yeah, not too bad. They're all going pretty well. Obviously, some germinated um, earlier in the piece, but it took that first rain to get everything, after seeding to get everything up because um, it was pretty well all... While it was sort of moist underneath, it was pretty well dry on top when we seeded, you know. And so are they at the stage they should be or are they a bit behind? Patches are a little bit behind, but a lot of it's, um, you know, well up to where it should be, yeah. A lot, a lot of the sort of medium country and big clay country that germinated is um, up, up quite good. Now, I know you've got livestock. How about he going for feed and water out there? We're, we are hand feeding. Um, I just feed some cattle in. And we've got two mobs of sheep on feeders, but I can't, I can't winch too much because there's a lot of people out here with not much feed at all. And uh, it, it's sort of coming, you know. It's, uh, we've just got to sort of lock a few paddocks up and uh, let it go a bit, you know. I know. Moorine rock farmer Joe Granich with Emma Field just talking about the season so far. He has access to scheme water and he got enough rain to fill some of his dams as well. And shortly, you're heading a little further south. This is to the Dumbleyung region where farmers in this patch haven't been so lucky as far as rainfall this year, this season, and are sort of planning ahead too, thinking about ways to address the situation when they've got these sort of dry seasons after another. And the Shire is about to trial dam covers. So you'll learn more about that shortly. You'll also spend some time in the Esperance region too where uh, a farming family um, from uh, Britain, well, the family's based there, but have been looking around for quite some time for a farm here in Australia and settled on, well, not one farm, it's sort of three farms in that Esperance region. So you'll learn more about the family and why they sort of pinpointed that spot on the map in the Esperance region to purchase a farm. That story coming for you shortly. And also checking in on the Muche cattle prices too. That's going to be interesting because for the last few weeks there's been a real run on cattle prices. So a recap of what happened on Friday at the Boyan Up cattle sale. It was going off according to John Testro. He'll wrap that sale for you at Boyan Up and then also take a look at the Muche Yarding and prices for you too. And I wonder if you heard the news that the Royal Show is on this year. There's a little bit of um, negotiating about whether it would go ahead or not, of course, due to COVID-19. But it is on and the state government is going to chip in $2.1 million. And the good news is the ticket prices for families and adults will be reduced by 25%. You will notice a few little changes at the show this year. There's going to be, obviously, the usual things, agriculture, the entertainment, displays, animals, food and fireworks. But there's going to be a particular focus 
on supporting and showcasing industry sectors which have been impacted by COVID-19. So things like tourism, small business, arts and entertainment and non-for-profit organisations. Now, this includes a pavilion dedicated to encouraging you to wander out yonder and plan a trip to regional WA. There'll be daily performances showcasing local arts and entertainment groups and displays featuring the great work that non-for-profit organisations do and how you can support them into the future. And you can also take the opportunity to thank a farmer by leaving a note of support at the show. So it's on this year, the 2020 Perth Royal Show. It's going to be held from September 26 to October the 3rd. And for more information, you can just search Perth Royal Show. This is The Country Hour on ABC WA. It is 29 past 12 and off to the newsroom now for an update with Brianna Shepherd. Hello. A man in his 60s has died from COVID-19 in Victoria. It comes after a man in his 90s died from the coronavirus overnight. It takes the state's total deaths to 22. For the first time in more than 100 years, Victoria's border with New South Wales will be closed from Tuesday night after Victoria recorded 127 cases of COVID-19 overnight. A senior WA government minister has dismissed the Australian Medical Association's call for a pause in the easing of COVID-19 restrictions in the state, given the outbreak in Victoria. The WA branch of the AMA says the state should delay moving to phase five eased restrictions until Melbourne's COVID-19 outbreak is under control. Dave Kelly says there are no plans to change the time frame for the further easing of restrictions in WA. And a close friend of a pilot killed in a helicopter crash in the Kimberley says Troy Thomas was a highly skilled operator and it was likely mechanical failure that led to the tragedy. Mr Thomas and a 12-year-old girl died on Saturday after the helicopter crashed in Broome. Adam Barnard says his heart goes out to Mr Thomas's wife. More news next hour. Thank you for the update, Brianna. It is half past 12. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology now, catching up with Steph Bond this afternoon. And Steph, uh, a good rain would be in order um, pretty much anywhere around the southwest land division. Anywhere uh, chance of that in the next week. Um, afternoon, Belle. So the current system that's just off the southwest uh, parts of the state now, uh, we had some pretty good rainfall totals over the last 24 hours in the southwest district, uh, mainly southwest of a line from Batmandra to Albany. Um, and that, unfortunately, is the only area that's going to get substantial rain um, in the next few days. So they've already had another 5 to 10 millimetres this morning, and they may expect another 5 to 10 millimetres uh, this afternoon and evening. We still do have some activity moving through the far eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division and into the gold fields as well. And look, there might be some patchy areas that get around uh, five to ten millimetres uh, through that area this afternoon and evening. But because it's all thunderstorm and showers and not very widespread, uh, you'd probably be pretty lucky to get that amount of rainfall. Otherwise, we're probably just looking at a couple of millimetres through that eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division and Goldfields overnight tonight. Uh, so that system to the southwest uh, moves away tonight. Uh, but tomorrow we are still left with some showers extending southwest of a line from about Geraldton down to Bremer Bay. Uh, and most of the rainfall figures around the uh, southwest area will be maybe even another 
five to ten millimetres, southwest of Bustleton to Albany, southwest of around Perth to Bremer Bay, we're probably only looking at around two to five millimetres, but for inland parts of the Southwest Land Division uh, and through the Central West District, we're probably only going to see up to one millimetre. There could also be a lingering shower or storm in the southeastern parts of the goldfields and the Euclid District early tomorrow morning, but once again, probably only up to one millimetre with that uh, activity as well. Uh, so by the time we get to Wednesday, we have a ridge that's developing over the central parts of the state uh, so we do have a, another cold front which is just going to brush the southern parts of the coastline so once again we may see some activity southwest of a line from Geraldton to Israelite Bay but most of that activity is going to be centred along that south coast between the southwest capes and uh, Esperance but we're not going to see the showers uh, penetrate too far inland uh, so that southern coastal area is going to receive around two millimetres, but the inland areas, once again, only up to about a millimetre. Uh, but with the ridge uh, kind of over the top of most of the southwest land division and those southerly winds, we're going to see a bit of a more prolonged period of colder weather. Um, so it's not like super, super cold for winter, but it's probably the first uh, period of around three to four days where temperatures are going to be, particularly for the southern parts of the southwest land division, in that. Uh, low teens, so around that 12 to 14 degrees through the southwest, southern parts and parts of the great southern region as well. And if you're in the central white belt and lower west, we're probably going to see temperatures remain around that 16 through 18 or 19 degrees uh, for the next three or four days as well. So by the time we get to Thursday, we are looking at showers just remaining along that south coast with a bit of onshore flow. Figures uh, for Thursday, we are looking at around two millimetres to five millimetres between Albany and Esperance. But once again, very coastal. And if you're southwest of uh the kind of Bunbury through to Eucla area, we're probably only looking at around 0.5 millimetres if you're in the inland areas south of that line. And by the time we get to Friday, it's a very similar story, coastal showers and maybe up just around two millimetres. Uh, so we do have the potential for patchy frost over the next few nights as well through inland parts of the southwest land division uh, with those colder temperatures and tonight we will have a sheep graziers warning out for parts of the southwest district. And Steph how's it looking in northern and eastern parts? Yeah, look, through northern and eastern parts, it is uh, pretty much just uh, steady as she goes, as we say sometimes here. Uh, we're looking at very uh, similar to this time of year conditions. Um, so, look, same old, same old. And warnings, you mentioned that sheep uh, farmers warning. Is that this afternoon? Can you recap that and anything else you've got going? Sure, we do. We will issue a sheep graziers warning for tonight and tomorrow morning, and that will be for the southwest district. That won't be issued till about two or three p.m. this afternoon. And otherwise, we have a, a strong wind warning for coastal waters between the uh, Perth coastal waters and Esperance, and also a gale warning for coastal waters between the southwest capes and Albany today. Thank you for that, Steph. It's twenty-four to one. Richard Hudson in the studio now.
to talk you through the rainfall figures over the weekend. Yeah, in the northern and eastern forecast districts, hardly anything at all. The most was one mil at Bulga Downs in the Gascoigne. That was it. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, not many to get through. In the lower west, Ancatel 8, Bickley 6, Dwelling Up 8, Jaredale 6, Carragullan North 8, Lancelin 14, Mandurah 16, Mount Solis 5. Perth in the metro region had seven mills, but I'll tell you what, it was an absolutely spectacular lightning show. I took two photos, Bell, and got uh, two strikes. Bang, bang. How's that? Well done. What yeah. time was that? It was around about just after sunset. Yeah, quite a spectacular. Well You're allowed to say that's a magnificent mm. photo, Richard. Beautiful photo. Thanks for sharing. You could be a professional, Richard. Thanks very much, Bill. Uh, Pinjarra, 10 to 11 mils. Rolly Stone, 6. And Waruna had 9. And then in the southwest area, Acton Park, 28. Aldervale, 11. Bailing up, 21. Beetle up, 17. Boyan up north, 26. Bridgetown, 21. Brunswick Junction had 23 to 24 mils at a few locations. Bunbury, 27. Bustleton at the airport, 20 to 22 mils. Cape Lewin, 17. Cape Naturalist, 20. Capel, 19 to 28 mils. Carlotta, 24. Chapman Hill had 38. Collie, 7 to 9 mils. Kawaram up, 48. Darden up, 26 to 31. Dinan up, 5. Donnybrook, 19 to 26 mils. Doyles Road, 30. Ferguson Valley, 28 to 29 mils. Four Acres, 28. Happy Valley, 23. Harvey, 13. Hintybrook, 22. Jarrowwood, 34. Jindong, 42. Carrydale, 33. Loguebrook, 10. Ludlow, 23. Manjum up, 17. This is an unusual one. Margaret River had 52, and then at the Deepherd station at Margaret River, only five. So very patchy. Mayan up south, 11. Macalinden, 12. Millian up 25. Mile up 35. Nan up 23. Newbick up 12. Newlands, 22. Northcliffe, 13 to 16. Payndale Alert Station, 29. Pemberton, 13. Perryvale Orchard, 31. Quinnan up 15. Ravenscliff Alert Station, 19. Rosabrook, 38. Scott River, 41. Shannon, 15. Somm Creek, 19. Thompsonbrook, 9. Tonebridge, 5. Vass, 19 to 37. Walpole Forestry, 7. Warner Glen, 34. Wilger up, uh, 18. Willie Abrupt, 44. Windy Harbour, 15. Witchcliffe had 60, so in that wine-growing region, that sort of rainfall is actually very welcome. Tomorrow we're going to hear just how much the wine production is down Australia-wide, in the southwest of WA included, because of not so much rain in the last year. Uh, Yanmar, Yanmar had 16 mils, and then the final one is Yungarillup had 32. I think there's a zero missing off that five for the Margaret River Deep Herd Station. You reckon? That'd be, that'd be my guess. I reckon you deleted it. It's your fault. Now, I was in bed last night listening to that rain and just thinking, hoping that it was going to get out further than just the, you know, CBD area. And I was thinking that list you just read through was going to be a lot longer than that today. Unfortunately not. I thought it would be as well. Uh, I mean, it's July the 6th, so we're one week down in July. It's middle of winter. But 
In Dumbleyung, for instance, in that area, it's so dry at the moment, the Shire has decided it's time to trial dam covers. They're hoping is going to reduce the water evaporation. Over the weekend, Dumbleyung Airport, for instance, only had 0.2 of a mil, so that's a, a tiny bit of dew and that's it. Dumbleyung, in case you're wondering, is around about sort of 250, 300 k's southeast of Perth. Peter Crispin is the CEO and he says some of the growers are actually still carting water for livestock. We have a lot of troubles in Dumble Young with not enough water and particularly with our stock feeding. So the water for stock, this year the cooker and stock dams run dry and that's facilitated the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation from declaring us as drought deficient and installing a number of water tanks in Cookeran so the farmers could cart out of it. Now, that to get water there, they've actually sometimes been carting water from Mount Barker. So it's quite a long way to cart water. It's a lot to keep up with, given the number of farmers that needed water for their stock. So anything that we can do to maximise the amount of water we keep on hand for their stock is going to be a benefit to the farmers. So talk us through how dam evaporation technology works. So it's a material that, when you look at it, it looks similar to shade cloth, but it's woven very, very differently, and it's quite flexible. It moves, so it's, it won't will not tear in the wind because of the way it's made. It has to be made on a special loom, of which there's only a limited number in the world. But once it's made, they mount it on cables across the dam, so it's structured to sit above the water, and it will reduce the evaporation by an estimated 70 to 80%, but it will also at the same time still allow any rainfall to fall through it. So it's very much like, you know, it's the same as shade cloth. So you say it's likely to save 70 to 80%. Numerically, how much could that be a year? So the initial calculations that they've actually done for us are showing about 6 million litres a year saved, which is an awful lot. When you think about carting that much, it's a lot. So whereabouts are the trial spots? Uh, so the trial spot we're looking at is the Cookeran Stock Dam. So it's one of our bigger dams at Cookeran, and it's Cookeran and east of Cookeran really where the drought deficiency is. So the main reason for the trial site there is because it is the biggest used dam and there's a lot of stock out there and there, there uh, has been a lot of problems with water. That's despite the fact that the farmers have actually been doing a lot of work on their own land to increase their capacity. But with the rainfall we've had over the last few years, we just don't have enough water. So Dumble Young is included in the Government Drought Relief Fund. Will these trials come out of that? And if so, how much will it cost? So as this is actually going to be a trial site, we're actually getting it at quite a reduced amount. So we're actually only talking about $66,000, which uh, when you think think about it, to save that much water is going to be a max, massive benefit going forward. So these are community dams, Peter. Is there any potential for domestic adaptation for farmers if this proves to be successful? I would think so, definitely. So this, this technology that they're, trialing, they're going to trial on our dam, it's actually been used particularly over swimming pools and smaller places for the last 25 years some of which have still got the original cloth over them and are still working. So I think if you can do it over a swimming pool, you could definitely do it over a small domestic dam on a farm. So it's something I think that the farmers would be able to look at as well. And so if this trial is as successful as anticipated, how far do you think this could go towards solving the Great Southern's water shortages? 
I'm not sure it will completely solve it because that's going to be dependent on how much rain we get, of course, but but it will certainly help conserve the water that we have got. And given there's uh, you know three or four areas out past Cooker and now that are all drought deficient, I think it'll be of great benefit where we do have dams to actually manage and keep as much of that water as we can. Those covers sound really interesting, don't they? How they're constructed and how they work. Dumble Youngshire CEO Peter Crispin talking to Hugo Rickard-Bell just about those plans to trial those dam covers to conserve water in parts of the Great Southern that are currently water deficient. 16 to 1, this is the Country Hour. And the next stop is the Esperance region. You are going on a farm tour. This farm... Well, it's actually three large farms were snapped up by a British-based company just over a year ago. So this is a great chance for you to get an insight into why foreign-based families, or companies for that matter, are interested in buying farms here in Western Australia. Esperance reporter Emma Field went out to meet the family. Normally the person in the passenger seat has to open the gate. Oh, no, you're holding all your tools and equipment, so. <laughs> So you've yeah. got sheep in here at the moment? Yeah, we do. So this is a part of the sort of deferred grazing strategy. Um, uh, we are going to have to graze earlier than we would have liked on the pastures. but um, I'm on a farm tour of Bedford Harbour Station near Mungunup, about an hour west of Esperance in the state's southeast. Farm manager Chad Hall is showing me around. Pop in here. This is a um, barley paddock that we're, um, we're grazing at the moment. Yep. Arkle Farms have taken over three properties from another foreign company, Westchester Group. This includes Bedford Harbour, but also neighbouring property Lake Chester and one near Varley in the Wheatbelt. When we drive back to the homestead, which has sweeping views of the ocean, I meet Siobhan Cowan. She's part of the family-owned company and she and her parents have been looking to buy a farming business in Australia for about two years. My mother and father have been interested in a while in getting involved in the agricultural industry in Australia. Um, They started looking um, all over WA and then uh, we settled on um, this property at Bedford Harbour in Lake Shasta. I was uh, working as a livestock vet in North Yorkshire in the UK with my husband and the opportunity came up to work for the family business over here and we both upped and moved pretty quickly and uh, moved over here April 2019. So why was your, in- your family interested in going into farming in Australia? My mother's family are actually all based uh, on the East Coast. She's from Queensland. Um, my father grew up over here and um, my father and and I've probably spoken about um, getting involved in an agricultural business, uh, mainly around livestock and cropping, for many years. Um, we initially thought about the UK, but Australia, based on the um, scale of farming properties and uh, economies of scale and opportunities over here, became the, um, the area of interest. So, Part of the appeal was the, the size of the property and then also um, reliability of rainfall. Um, we're very coastal here and we get a lot of um, a lot of kind of rainfall off the coast. What's your vision for this place? And the vision is, is to move this property back towards being a mixed livestock and cropping operation. We took it over as a, as a pure cropping um, property a year ago and, and we've invested a huge amount into um, taking it back towards, towards a mix of livestock. The family created some waves when they bought an Angus bull from the Millamurra stud last year called Paratrooper. 
for $160,000, making it the seventh most expensive bull in Australia. And they bought the Sheraton Angus stud, which was a stud farm manager Chad Hall had worked with in his previous job. And uh, we're just starting to see our own progeny now drop, and yeah, we're, we're quite happy with them. The cattle for us is a tool for those lighter parts of the, of the farm. They're areas that we can't crop and we can't stock sheep on, uh, or we can't stock sheep heavily on, so we can put the cattle on quite light and we can, we can get condition on the cattle. So, um, Let's move on to your sheep operation. I mean, one of the first things I heard about this property was you're building a big shearing shed. Now, I understand that's been put on hold, but obviously you have plans for this property in terms of sheep. Chad, tell us um, where it started and where you're at now. Well, we've obviously started on designs um, on a shearing shed. There's probably two options at this stage. It's going to depend on, on where our solid-state solid sort of sheep numbers end up which we'll learn as we sort of learn our stocking rates and things like that. The shearing shed will be will obviously need to be built um, future-proof. You sort of don't get very many options to, to set up from scratch. A lot of the things around it will be straight drags. Can you explain what that is? In a traditional shed, you would um, drag the sheep out and you'd turn a corner and, and, and to get into the position to shear, whereas this, this would be set up so that you drag directly out of the pen into position and then, and then shear. So it just um, protects the shearer around twisting and turning as he's, as he's dragging the sheep. A lot of things focusing on OH&S, um, shearer safety and, and sheep welfare. We're thinking it'd probably be a raised board, be more than likely a sawtooth design, and it would have a lot of e-switches and, and things around the shed so that we've, we've got safety measures in place. And how many stands do you think it might be? There's been conversation as to whether we go 10 or 20, but at this stage um, we're probably going to be looking at, at the 10-stand um, shed. Last year you bought the Rylington Park research flock from the Ag Department in the Great Southern. What was your thinking behind that? Yes, yeah, so the Rylington Park flock was, um, and they were basically selecting for worm resistance uh, in sheep. They've done a lot of years' worth of hard work on it. So at the moment they're, they're joined back to the Rylington Park rams. Arkell Farm Manager Chad Hall says they're aiming to get up to 20,000 breeding ewes. It's Lake Shasta's where we're running um, sheep. That will be a, a rotational model. So we'll look to have somewhere around sort of probably 60% sheep and 40% crop, um, and that'll rotate on a um, two years in sheep and one year um, in crop. Now, Siobhan, just back to you, I just want to know what it was like for you coming over from the UK to Mungunup and setting up a new operation. Yeah, it's been a, a huge challenge. My husband and I moved out here um, just over a year ago. There wasn't um, a huge amount here when we first arrived. We also have uh, just had a little baby girl, um, so that's added to the fun. We've um, we've really enjoyed it, and we've enjoyed getting to know everyone in the community and and getting to getting to know this area a bit better. Siobhan Cowan, her family company, which includes her parents, who are based in Switzerland, have invested in those three farms here in Western Australia. And the Cowans have taken over the Westchester Group farms on a lease-to-buy basis. And those two farms at Manglanup are about 14,000 hectares of arable land. So you can just see the scale that Siobhan is talking about. And in another interesting move... They've appointed former agricultural consultant Greg Kirk as their CEO. And doesn't that shearing said uh, sound pretty impressive when that finally sort of gets off the drawing board and the family decides which way they want to go with that? Quite um, an impressive sight to see once that's been constructed. This is the Country Hour and nine minutes to one. Getting to the markets 
very shortly for you just to check on those cattle prices, just to see if things are continuing to go up and up as far as the cattle prices go. But earlier, just a few moments ago, in fact, you heard about uh, the Dumbleyung Shire. So this is 250, 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. Just taking a look at... Uh, dam covers, so trialling dam covers and hoping they're going to reduce water evaporation. This text through from, it was a Luke, yes, Luke in Muck and Buden, saying that pioneering farmers built dam covers out of wood, netting and straw all over the wheat belt. And I didn't know that. I wonder how effective they were at sort of stopping that water evaporation because I think it was Peter Crispin, the CEO at the Dumbleyung Shire, saying was it 60 or 70% it sort of stops the water evaporation, so quite effective. Uh, I'm sure the technology's improved over the years since the old school pioneering farmers, but still I'm sure they saved something during those days too. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA, eight minutes to one and not far away from the results of the Mouche cattle market and also going back to Friday just to get a recap on the buoyant up cattle market. Hello, I'm Thomas Ariti. Join me for the world today. Mixed messages, frustration and anger. We'll hear from people in lockdown in Melbourne, including some of the 3,000 Housing Commission residents heading into a third day inside. And it comes as Victorians are warned to brace for an increase in COVID-19 cases. And sexual harassment in the legal profession. There's now a push to set up an independent body to examine complaints about the judiciary. That's coming up on the world today. Hope you can join me. Seven minutes to one. Well, the run of record prices at the local cattle markets continued at Boyan Up on Friday. Now, I know you're keen to find out if that was also the case at Mouche today, and you won't miss out. You'll get the Mouche yardings and prices in just a few minutes' time. But first, with a wrap of the Boyan Up sale, here's John Testro. Good afternoon. Cattle market sales throughout Western Australia are certainly enjoying their moment in the sun. The Boyan Up store sale held on Friday afternoon saw the fourth consecutive set of record prices on live weight cattle set within a month. In the yarding of 750 heads sold by live weight, Frisian feed across steers, mainly 400 kilos plus, sold from 240 to 372 cents to average 2.98, up an incredible 30 cents on the previous record and a top price of $2,051. Heavier score three types were pushed by the processors. The majority of the live weight cattle penned, however, comprised beef bred wieners, with Angus again the dominant breed. Uh, wiener steers sold from 384 to 472 cents to average 430. That's up five cents to a top price of uh, $1589. Wiener heifers at uh, 250 to 400 cents to average 378, up three cents to a top price of 1458. And there was a further. Uh, 750 live weight, uh, I beg your pardon, appraisal Frisian and Frisian cross cattle, and uh, they sold at rates very similar to the previous sale. But uh, what made uh, Boyne Up sale of such a good sale was that the quality had abated dramatically from the previous record sale set a fortnight ago. But um, all this followed on from Thursday's Mount Barker uh, trade cattle sale, where uh, well respected and prominent buyer uh, of trade and feedlot cattle, John Gallup said that it was probably the dearest trade sale he'd seen in Western Australia for 50 years. Well, it's certainly been an incredible run of record prices. Uh, John Testro, you're at the Mouche cattle market today and you'll go through those results in just a moment or two. But how do you reflect on last week's results? Did you expect the prices just to continue to rise like they have been recently? 
Yes, Bill. The, uh, the feedlotters need cattle in the system to supply the, the, short, the shortage that's going to be right throughout the, uh, uh, the winter and spring. And uh, I think they're just bearing the brunt of what's happening at the moment and, uh, and desperately need to put cattle on feed. So uh, I would think that it'll, uh, this market will stay on strong uh, you know, for probably the next month at least anyway. All right. Well, look, let's... Um turn the attention now to today's cattle sale at Muche. 1,725 cattle were yarded. That's down about 130 on last week. Was demand for these cattle as strong as it was at Boyne Up on Friday, John? Probably not quite as, uh, quite as strong as Boyne Up, but still a very good sale. Uh, young cattle, uh, the weaner cattle were 20 to 30 cents dearer, but uh, not to the heavy heights that uh, Boyne Up saw on Friday. Yearlings today were 6 to 10 cents dearer, grain heifers up 5 and cows eased uh, 7 cents on the score twos. But just to run through the market very quickly for you, Bill, Villa Steers local 284 to 440 cents, up 30 cents of the parcels at 274 to 322 and they gained 20. Local heifers, uh, Wiener heifers, 308 to 386, up 30 cents, and the pastorals at 196 to 348, up 20. Yearling steers, local, uh, predominantly at 376 cents, which is up 6 cents, with the pastorals at 238 to 326, up 10. Yearling heifers, local, 332 to 408, up 10 cents, with the pastorals 226 to 326, up 10. Grown steers were only pastorals today, and... Uh, there was a poorer selection on these types. They sell from 280 to 338, which is probably down 40 cents. But uh, grown heifers, uh, they were only local, up five at 280 to 366. In the cow market, like the feeders, predominantly 228 to 248, down seven to 10. The medium score two to processes, the locals 222 to uh, 260, and the pastoral 236 to 240, all down seven, with the prime cattle, Locals at 278 to 314 firm. Pastoral cattle uh, prime, they're a little bit lighter than the locals. They sold from 252 to 272 and probably ease seven cents. In the bull market, uh, including pastorals, light to live export 306 to 336, down two. Medium to live export 264 to 305, down 20 on less competition, but the heavies uh, remain very firm at 262 to 308. All in all, Bill, it's a pretty good time to sell cattle and it wants to be, well, it's going to keep going, I think. All right, well, we can check up on Thursday anyway at Mount Barker because you think it's going to last for around four weeks or so. But I wonder, did you hear the country uh, uh, last week that for the first time in about four years, a pastoralist from WA sent cattle to the Dublin sale yards in South Australia. Do you think that was worthwhile? Well, I was speaking to my counterpart on the day that they did uh, in Dublin and uh, he said they sold very well. But that's an option that uh, people on the border have got. But uh, I personally think that the market's very strong in WA and uh, it's a bet either way. And do you think other WA pastoralists are going to sort of follow suit, do the same thing? Have you heard that? Well, the pastorals in the top end tend to run across the top, Bill. So, uh, you know, that... We're certainly no strangers to uh, to marketing interstate, but as I said, the market in WA is very strong. Why would you? All right. Well, we'll check the yarding and the prices on Thursday at Mount Barker. John, thank you for the wrap. I appreciate that. 
Good on you. Thanks, Bill. John Chestro at the Muche Cattle Markets today. 1,200, 1,725 cattle were yarded, and that was down about 130 on last week. Not as strong as Boyne Up, but still very strong. Great to catch up with you on the Country Hour this afternoon. Heading off to the newsroom now, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.